Tonight on Arena, a new translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses and new albums from Little Sims, Iggy Pop, Bell and Sebastian and Leila Moss up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Classics now, the annual festival that explores ancient writing and texts in a contemporary way, takes place next weekend. One of the most influential Greek texts is Ovid's Metamorphoses, the mythic tale of gods and their interactions with mortals, for good or ill. It was written in Rome more than two thousand years ago, but has influenced writers from Dante to Kafka and beyond. Ovid's epic poem is full of shorts of stories familiar to us from vain Narcissus to greedy Midas to Daedalus and Icarus and Orpheus and Eurydice. But Metamorphosis is also about the power and cruelty of the gods. Stephanie McCarter's new translation of Ovid's work looks at these stories from a feminist perspective, examining in detail the sexual violence often obscured in past translations. And I'm delighted to be joined this evening by Stephanie McCartney, McCarter. Stephanie, listeners, I, I, lots of these stories we'll have heard in isolation, if you like, and maybe not necessarily have associated them with this bigger work. It's very different metamorphosis from, from other classic epic poems. There isn't one hero who's off on a big quest here. It's a different type of presentation. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. I mean, I think that the best thing to compare Ovid's um, text to is a, is a textile. And the cover of my translation has a fabulous textile on the front um, because it's a kind of um, art form associated with women in the ancient world. And so much of the epic takes up the perspective and experiences of women. And in that way, it sort of turns um, traditional epic on its head, which takes up the experiences of men and heroes and war. Um, Ovid asks instead, you know, what it's like to inhabit a world with a, not just a human body that's subject to metamorphosis, but also a, you know, a female body that's subject to various types of violence that in some ways intersect with the violence experienced by men and in other ways is, uh, are unique to women. So was Ovid a very modern man in a very ancient time? <laughs> You know, I like to think that women have always been interesting. <laughs> and um, certainly, I think if you look at, um, you know, a Greek literature prior to Ovid, um, tragedy often takes up the experiences of women, especially, you know, the experiences of women in war and the sexual experiences of women. Um, Euripides was famously interested in women. Um, so I think, you know, Ovid is building upon previous interest in women's experiences, but applying it to an epic lens, which is, uh, it was just quite new, I think, uh, for, for his moment. And I guess when we talk about the sexual experiences of women in and around war, these are often uninvited and unwelcome sexual experiences. It makes it a difficult text to approach, I'm guessing. Absolutely. I mean, I think to understand the text, though, you do have to accept the fact that um, that there's a lot of sexual violence. Um, there's also a lot of mutual love in the text. I mean, one of the things I love so much about Ovid is that he never gives you a simple or one-sided way of looking at the world or the women or men who inhabit it. So um, one side of erotic 
love and passion in the metamorphoses is violent. Uh, the other side is mutual, and uh, one is hierarchical. The other is um, is mm. is equitable. And so, famously, you have the love story of, of Balkis and Philemon and the old couple who host the gods in their house. Um, Ovid tells us there's no hierarchy in this house. Uh, there's equality between them. He says there's no slave and no master in this house. And in some ways, um, you know, these wonderful stories of mutual love, Pyramus and Thisbe, which is the source for Romeo and Juliet, mm. it throws the violence of power um, into relief um, because we have to read these stories of hierarchical rape and abuse um, against these stories of mutual love. Interestingly, it's often the humans who uh, who have mutual love affairs. And so, you know, we make those in power, the gods, look really bad in comparison. And and you've used the word power there quite a few times and you've talked about yeah. in, in inequity. I mean, it, that's really what we're talking about in those hierarchical relationships. Is it a, 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 mis, a misplacement or not a misplacement of power, an imbalance of power? Absolutely. I mean, power becomes manifested in so many different ways in the metamorphoses. Um, you know, we have power, sexual power. Um, power often intersects with gender. Um, power is what enables metamorphosis. Um, you know, sometimes it's abusive. Um, very often it's abusive, um, the use of power in that regard. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really, to me, it's a poem about power and the many ways power manifests itself um, in people's lives. And interestingly to me, it's also about the way power transforms, too. Um, one of my favorite stories, I think one of the most beloved stories from the Metamorphoses, is that the story of Daedalus and Icarus and how he uses the power of art mm. to fly. <laughs> but there's another story that Ovid tells us about Icarus that very few people actually remember or pay much attention to. It follows that story, and it's the story of Paradix, his nephew, whom he kills. He throws him off the Acropolis. So he's actually responsible for two young men falling to their deaths. Yeah. Um, and he does that because he's jealous of Paradix, because Paradix is a great artist. And so here we even see Daedalus sort of succumbing to the desire for power through art. He wants to be the best. He yeah. doesn't want any competitors. <laughs> let's let's talk about maybe some of the specific imbalances of power between the gods and the women that they choose to um, possess, to own, to whatever word we want to use. And this is a big part of right. your translation is what word we do use, in fact. Right. Talk to me a little bit about Apollo and, and Daphne and the nature of that relationship and how you then approached uh, translating it. Sure. I mean, I made it very clear from the start that this is a rape story. That was really clear, uh, really important to me to use that clear language. Um, you know, this story sets up the paradigm for the rape stories that follow. And from the very beginning, it's a story about power because um, it starts with a sort of power competition between Apollo and Cupid as to which is the more powerful god. Um, but it's also about Daphne and her own kind of autonomy, um, whether or not she can have power over her own body. Um, and this is something that simply is refused to her in the world of the poem. Um, she makes very clear she wants to be a virgin. Uh, she wants to follow the goddess Diana. Um, she persuades her father to let her remain unmarried, but she just simply cannot have that kind of power in this world. Um, and so, so much of it is who gets to have power over bodies. Um, Ovid makes it very clear from the 
beginning lines of his poem. This is a poem about bodies and what it means to walk around in a world with a vulnerable body that other people might abuse. Um, and the words that uh, that Ovid uses for sexual violence are really um, connected to Roman concepts of power abuse. So, for example, the main word for rape in Rome, and the one that Ovid uses most, is vis, V-I-S. Sometimes it's pronounced wis. Mm. But we actually get the word violence from this. And you could be charged for rape um, under this, under uh, under laws against vis in Rome, but you can also be charged with other sorts of violence, like carrying weapons in the city. So anything that might um, might affect another person's expectation of bodily autonomy. Um, so rape was very much wrapped up with notions of bodily autonomy, liberty, political liberty, um, and general safety. If we use a word like rape, it's very clear in English what we mean. I mean, there are other words that, that can be used and have been used in previous translations of Ovid, words like possess or own, words that I used earlier on, which have a much softer feel to them. How clear in your mind is Ovid in, in his telling of these stories? Is, is there any ambiguity in his language? Is there any slipperiness in his language or is it very straightforward? I mean, I would say around 95% of the time, it's very straightforward, particularly in some of the most famous stories, um, like Philomela, for example. I mean, he very clearly uses the language of violence there, of vice, and other language that makes it very clear. Um, you know, there are moments in the text where uh, another word like rapio that he uses, which is actually where we get our word rape, it means to steal. Sometimes it's incredibly clear <laughs> that that word means rape. Um, so J Jupiter, he steals Io's chastity mm. using the word rapio. But then other times he uses that word to sort of throw doubt on whether a woman has actually consented. So, for example, Perseus, after he has won Andromeda, he's defeated the sea monster, he seizes her, he snatches her using rapio from the rock that she is tied to. And you're like, well, I don't know if she consented to that. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily describe that as rape um, per se, but he certainly uses that word to throw some doubt on her consent. She hasn't really said yes. Uh, what about um, in, in previous translations then, the descriptions in and around female bodies? I, I noticed sure. that you're very keen on the absence of adjectives, which perhaps in, <laughs> yes. in previous uh, <laughs> translations was not the case. You might give me some examples of where an added adjective can really soften the effect of a line or change the effect of a line. Absolutely. Yes, I, you know, this is one way iambic pentameter helped me because it helped keep me free of adjectives because it's a very concise line. And I started noticing very early on that I, there were adjectives there that I just, I just simply did not see. So, for example, Apollo is looking at Daphne's body and she has no descriptors really of her body. Um, we we see that he's looking at her lips, but other translators might say that her lips are teasingly tempting or a darling little mouth. And so mm. she gets sort of sexualized through the way that translators have depicted her body. Other ways that this could happen is in the clothing that these characters are wearing. So Callisto, for example, she doesn't really have anything that would associate her with femininity. And the garments that uh, Ovid gives to her are not really gender specific. So she's wearing like just clothes, but translators will often say that she's wearing a dress, 
right? So mm. I wanted to be very careful if Ovid's language was not gender-specific not to use it because it's very interesting that so many of these victims of sexual violence are gender non-conforming. And I wanted that to really come out in the translation. And, and I it's guess, important. Yeah, and, and I guess when we hear contemporary conversations in and around what a woman may or may not have been wearing on the occasion of yeah. a rape, it, it kind of seems as if you know, 3,000 years later, are we still in the same place? <laughs> exactly, that's right. Well, and the, you know, to, to describe... Daphne is having teasing lips. Mm. To me, the you know the connotation of the tease, right, and yeah. discourse around rape is, is a problem. So I wanted to keep that out of it entirely. Will you tell me a little bit, uh, if you would, Stephanie, about the, the the events and the situations in Columbia University in 2015, uh, and the reactions of the the students there to how translators had represented rape and sexual violence in the classics. Sure. You know, interestingly, I don't think the translation was enough a part of the conversation. But, you know, this was a reaction to the fact that Ovid was included in the core curriculum at Columbia. And the core literary humanities is a course that all Columbia students have to take. So whether a student took it was um, was not an, was not up to the student. And um, apparently, um, what had happened was that Ovid was being taught without much attention, a paid or consideration of um, the sexual violence that he contained. And so an op-ed uh, was written in the Columbia Spectator, which was their, the student newspaper, by a group of students who complained that the professor was focusing on the beauty of the language, um, the poetic devices, but not really discussing the text as a story of rape. And so this set off, as you can imagine, a sort of international debate about trigger warnings, whether or not the professor should have used a trigger warning or simply removed Ovid from the class. Um, and that was, incidentally, Columbia's response. They simply uh, removed Ovid from the syllabus. And I think he has been put back in and then taken back out. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, you know, the question is, a, do you teach the text? And B, how? Um, it, should we offer some kind of trigger warning? Um, my thinking is more about, you know, centering rape in teaching Ovid in general. Um, I don't think that a trigger warning yeah. in and of itself is sufficient. I think you need to really think about the, the presence of sexual violence because it's so key to understanding the epic and the way it presents power and metamorphosis in the body and sexuality and gender. And am I right in saying, Stephanie, that yours is the first in, in, in entire translation of of its metamorphosis by a woman of the, of the entire there, text? There is one before me, Mary Ennis, um, who uh, translated it for Penguin Classics in the nineteen fifties into prose. Um, yours so is the it's first poetic. Yes, yes, mine's the first metrical poetic translation by a woman. Yes. And, and when you write in poetry, I suppose it is that thing about the beauty of the language. Is it important to not let the flowery or the flourish of poetry take over the harshness of the stories? Well, you know, I think that beauty and brutality can go together quite interestingly and effectively and movingly in the, in the stories uh, that Ovid tells. I mean, he's, he's brilliant at yoking horror and beauty, um, which I think the ancients just in general were really great at. But I think also the the frankness of the language um, was a, was an important part of the poetry I was trying to achieve. I wanted the poetry to be direct and easy to read 
And I wanted it to give you a gut punch occasionally um, because that's what Ovid does. Um, So I was really um, reading a lot of like Philip Larkin at the time to try to remind myself that, you know, direct, plain language can still, you know, present us with beautiful metrical poetry and can still be poetic Stephanie thanks so much for being with us this evening and speaking to us that's Stephanie McCartner McCarter I beg your pardon Stephanie will be in conversation with Helen Morales on the theme of subversive power next Friday January the 27th it's an online event as part of Classics Now and the the website for further information is classicsnow.ie it has been called our crowning glory it has been the subject of many myths and legends think Samson or Medusa it has even lent its name to a 1960s musical and now hair is the theme of a new exhibition by artist and former hairdresser Amanda Jane Graham. The Coiffured is the name of the show. It opens at the Irish Architectural Archive Dublin uh, next Wednesday the 18th of January. Amanda brings humour and an art historical eye to her new work. Drawings include Roman and Rollers, Edmund Burke, tied roundy bushy blow dry with butterfly clips and other such titles. Delighted to have Amanda Jane Graham with me in studio. We're going to tweet some of these images as we go along. Uh, and if you want to see those uh, images, go to at RTE Arena. Oh, very good. Um, so uh, <laughs> I suppose this really is, you've been a hairdresser or you were a hairdresser for a long time. Was the art always going on in the background? Yeah. Or in fact, were you an artist when you were a hairdresser? Just to say that it actually opens on Tuesday, the Tuesday. 17th. Oh, right. There's okay. a conference. There's a series of events because Creative Ireland have been very good and, and we've had an awful lot of public engagement events. Sure. So there's the website, um, com, and it's all on that, all the events and everything. But this Tuesday, the 17th. Tuesday, the 17th is the opening. At, at half six. Right. Yeah. But um, yes, I, when I was at school, I always wanted to go to art college. But... Um, education put me off education a bit you know so I didn't want to go continue on with a few more years at that mm. time so I kind of thought what would be next like what would be similar to it so um, I thought hairdressing it's kind of making shapes with hair and air and I did that for over 20 years and then um, the, the the art bug got, got a hold of me yeah. again And when you were d- doing hair if that's the correct <laughs> I think it is the correct verb really had you, had you a sense of that time of the, you know, the, as I mentioned in the introduction, the, you know, the kind of the mytholo- mythological elements attached to her, you know, the, the kind of super superstitions around it, the powers attached to it? I knew nothing of the history until I did this um, t- this residency. And I just after coming off the end of an MNIT in, so, in the Department mm. of Sociology in Minute, so it was straight from one to the other. So my research skills were quite heightened. And it wasn't until I started to dig in to research on that I actually this incredible history unfolded that I was completely unaware of. I was looking at it more from a sculptural aspect, Mm. making shapes and structures and forms with hair that was very wearable and very, you know, very easy to live with, very little maintenance. And, you know, and and I I really enjoyed what I was doing. Other concerns, not not necessarily aesthetic. It never even entered my head that there was, Mm. I actually thought it was because there was kind of, you know, I always felt an undervalued um, career choice. It always felt kind of superficial without foundations. And um, then when I started to research and realised that they can date hair back, dressing back to be, you know, um, 
very established 3400 BC in Egyptian society. You could have knocked me over with a feather. Because was, that, was, that was when the first wig was made, was it? They found that in a tomb and that wig, it's not folklore or myth. It can be viewed online and it's in, um, uh, uh, in a museum in Italy. And it was a woman called Merit and she was, she, her, she had extensions, combs, you know, all sorts of hair accessories, clips, pins and nothing that far removed from what we're using today. So So in fact, you're going to tell me next that hairdressing is the oldest profession in the world. Well, uh, it's up there with them, (laughs) definitely. Okay, let us us tweet an image (laughs) at RTE Arena. Um, uh, we'll go back to Egyptian times and Sphinx spiral wind or spiral wind? wind, wind I, I used I used hairdressing terminology. So explain you might explain wind then to us. Yeah, so uh, there's different uh, there's different types of wines and different names on each of them, and you know like they they all have you know um, like say uh, a double brick, um, a, a double basic, uh, a hopscotch, a directional wind. There's also all dependent on the look and the finish that you're you're wanting to achieve. So what I did was I kind of looked at the the hair uh, it through in historical art. Mm. I wasn't really about because we've been looking at the hair for centuries and not actually noticing the 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 profession and the, the and acknowledging the expertise behind the hair. Mm. So what I did was I put that expertise in. Right. Well, let, let, let's. We've tweeted. We've tweeted this image of the Sphinx. So yeah. th- this is a drawing, is it? That's a drawing. Yeah. And there is none of I used to like uh, hood dryers, hair nets, rollers, hairpins, and randy brushes would have been. What tools that would have been everyday items when I was hairdressing? Mm. I stopped hairdressing about twenty eleven, so um, you know. So I used used equipment that would have been familiar to me, but they're instantly recognisable kind of motifs of the hairdressing industry. And not one of the drawings would they ever have had hood dryers or hair nets, you know, because they're eighteenth century to you know yeah. three thousand four hundred. So you, you've BCE. given you've given the Sphinx. Um, a, a bit of a style here. Yeah. What what have you done for her? I've given him a, a, a spiral wind, and a, a it's under a hood dryer. Now a spiral wind would probably be more of a perming t- term, but uh, and he's under a hood dryer. But it, it, it's it's um, it's just a language to place the hairdressing profession in there because uh, he would have probably had braids really mm. but uh, I mean that wouldn't have articulated well onto on paper uh, so it, they're just the rollers and the hood dryer and the hair nets and the roundy brushes and the butterfly clips are all um, motifs to represent the hairdressing yeah. profession Let's lo- have a look at um, poor Al Botticelli um, <laughs> thought he had he was perfect when he gave us his Venus <laughs> but no <laughs> you have adjusted to Botticelli's Venus and we'll tweet that image now at RT Arena to have a look at this. What have you given Venus here? Well, Venus has a head of tinfoil highlights. Now, so um, <laughs> I looked at Botticelli for two reasons because Botticelli was a fantastic stylist, mm. and he's been recorded. Uh, you know, it's been documented that he did most of his own styling. He was like so. He was a stylist, a hairstylist, and painter, but he was discouraged by the church because, for vanity, um, because it was seen as vanity. But uh, and also the church was a big employer at the time, so there's probably a, a, a two aspects to that. But Botticelli did a painting. Now that um, Venus is a woman called Simonetta Vipucci. 
and uh, he did quite a lot of portraits of her. Um, she wasn't alive for most of them. She died. She died quite young. But she, he did that. That would have been um, that painting that he did of that would have been at the end, like fourteen ninety five. But he did mm. one of of um, Simonetta um, about twenty years before that, and her hair was brown. And then he did one a few years after that, and it had a. Um, a a more of a coppery gold effect to it and so they're just inconsistencies in the colour and you have to presume that Botticelli was fairly accurate you yeah. know? so and hair colouring goes back um, thousands of years as well, as well. so it, like there was a, be a chance that her hair was coloured and he was a great hairstylist so it was kind of bringing you know so there was that um, that aspect of, of that and of the same period in, in many mm, ways is yeah. the Albrecht Dürer this is a, a self portrait that you have Justice, it's now a new portrait, and again <laughs> you've given Albrecht a bit of a a bit of a hairstyle. He's here. another spiral wind, yeah, and he's fascinating to look at uh, from a hair a hair point of view, and to kind of look at historical portraiture and have and bring the hairdressing profession and and kind of in in depth analysis of hairstyles because there isn't consistency his hair in in that painting that painting is um it's called um a self portrait with a a, a fur trimmed robe yeah. and it's in 1500 and up until that um he did one much earlier than when he was a child and his hair was quite straight in the earlier years and then he did one around 1493 and it had a ready tinge but it, there was no defined curls he did a self portrait 2 years before that and the hair was similar um except he was wearing a hat in that the, the 1498 one in this one no hat and it's been described um, the portrait he did as a business card because he's as details in the middle, the middle ground, you know, yeah. at, at eye level, and he's all his kind of business details. The, the way you're describing all of these various hairstyles, they do sound many of them like modern hairstyles. In fact, is there very little that we're doing in today's we, hairdressing that hadn't been done previously? It's this. The profession and the skills have been handed down for centuries. Mm. They have been modernised, but hair extensions and wigs are still a huge yeah. part of the industry. And this has been handed down for you know over five thousand years. So it's this ancient profession and skill and and you know the the knowledge and the training that has been handed. And it's just yeah. really quite been quite undervalued. And considering you know it's you're, it made. It, feel that it's quite superficial and, and when it's not not at all you're, 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 you're batting you're, you're doing the batting here for the hairdressing profession yeah, which absolutely. You, you obviously can quite readily believe is undervalued let's finish with an image of Edmund Burke <laughs> at RT Arena again to look with this one tight roundy brush blow dry with butterfly clips yes yes you wonderful see, wonderful description you know if I try to describe this it's, it's almost as if he has one two three four five six maybe tight roundy brushes in his head <laughs> and these butterfly clips holding them in place well Edmund um, we have to go kind of go back a bit before we kind of make uh, make sense of Edmund um, mm. so uh, um, the French Revolution um, happened and but before that in, six, in, in 1768 hairdresser 
hairdressers had broken free of the guild. They felt the, the barber guild very restrictive because men's hair was so flamboyant, the wigs and, and was so flamboyant, but the guild they felt very restricted by. So the more flamboyant and more creative hairdressers in the guild broke free and broke in, into ladies' hairdressing. And Marie Antoinette was a big influencer at the time because um, she had um, a, a hairstylist, uh, Alexis uh, what's uh, Alexis uh, Otier I can't remember his mm. name I've actually got a painting of that title but he did he was her hairstylist for her entire from her from when she was queen to when she died and she did this hairstyle that was seven. he did this hairstyle uh, and it was 72 inches tall on the top of her head she wore it to the opera and there was a crush to try and see it and hairdressers grew in you know there was so much demand for them and but so come to come to the Edmund Burke and just tell me yeah, what you're doing yeah, there. So they um, they because society, you know, the, the aspiring middle classes were copying Marie Antoinette. It was costing a, a fortune. They were getting families into debt. There was two pounds of flour going into hair. So the proletariat, the working classes, were enraged with this waste of flour, yeah. and the harvests were were uh, uh, you know so the, not just the crops were failing. So the French Revolution happened, and hairdressers got blamed. And Professor um, Don Hersog said, you know, that the hairdressers were demonised. Because um, Burke was terrified and the British elite of that spilling over when they were trying to protect the monarchy and their social class, he really uh, reinforced this uh, image of the the hairdresser being, you know, and and derogatory, this negative stereotype and said that it couldn't be an honour for any person to be a hairdresser. So that's why you've paid him back with a very fine hairstyle. Because Don Herzog considers that to be an inherited narrative that that is still Mm. around today. So that, that, and he was partial to their expertise. And this is what that, that drawing is pointing to. Well, at. listen, it's a, it's a fascinating exhibition. You also very kindly brought me in the, the booklet that accompanies it that has lots of the history within it as well and essays yeah. in and around the mythologies around her and all of the rest. The Coiffured is the title of the exhibition. It's at the Irish Architectural Archive from the 17th of January through until the 24th of February. Is, yes. And you can find full details on iarc.ie. We have four albums up for review this evening. The Godfather of Punk, Iggy Pop, returns after his forays into jazz, crooning, poetry and electronic experimentation. Now the 75-year-old Iggy Pop goes back to his roots and in his 19th solo album, which is called Every Loser, Scotland's Bell and Sebastian. New album, Late Developers, was only announced this week and is a companion to 2022's top 10 album, a bit of previous. Then we'll have inter, in, Internal Working Model. This is from Leila Moss, also known as the vocalist for Duke's, the Duke Spirit. This is her third solo album where she looks at the mess of the modern world through open eyes and attempts to reconnect with her tribe. But we'll start with an album called No Thank You from rap, the rapper and Mercury Prize winner Little Sins, who's back after a mix of triumph and setbacks. Let's listen to a track called Gorilla. Say 
Sim Sima, who got the keys to my blood clot? Bima, big time driller, monkey to gorilla. Who is this woman that I'm seeing in the mirror? Of gorilla from Little Sims and her latest album, No Thank You. Simon Marr and Louise Bruton are our, our reviewers on this Friday evening. This is her fifth album, Simon. Just give us a little bit of what she's achieved in the space of five albums this is it, like and it, who she is I suppose it, it's amazing for somebody who's 28 probably came out more of this as a grime scene from London mm. and you can tell straight away from that tune but uh, yeah it released f- five albums to date so the first three albums everybody loved them but it seemed that very few people bought them and she didn't get that major label backing and she's still in that funny position now where she still wouldn't be part of the mm. having the backing that many other big artists get her fourth album then where uh, sometimes it might be an introvert got the Ivor Novello nomination got the Mercury Prize nomination all of that stuff she eventually then went on uh, to actually get the Mercury Prize went on to tour was going to tour in the US sort of late last year pulled out herself said look I couldn't deal with the stress and I couldn't get the backing and that's one yeah. of those things that's affecting an right. awful lot of acts now so here she is now with the with the latest yeah, but, album and, and, I mean, and, I, and she has a lot to say she certainly does and I, I loved that track the first time I heard the big brass start yeah. and then all those end rhymes gorilla <laughs> you know and the way she extends that last syllable mirror cigar you know, she manages to get all those words to rhyme but she is angry here Louise yeah she is angry like it's a the great thing with the like I feel like the music sounds like it belongs in a big Las Vegas splashy show mm. but then when you actually listen to what she's saying she like she's so angry she's angry with the way she's been treated in the industry she's angry with the way black artists are treated in the industry she's angry about the black violence that happens on the street between black communities and between uh, kind of white communities and everything it's just spilling But how out. does she manage not to preach to us when she's angry because she do- it doesn't feel like preaching to me um, I think there's a level of exhaustion there where she's had this conversation with so many people time and time again and in her place um, as a as a well critically adored musician she feels like people are almost taking advantage of her place where they'll listen to give her five stars but they won't actually give her the space to, to speak on on these uh, all the kind of atrocities that keep happening mm. um, her friends her her friend Henry Uzoko was a, a model a model who was stabbed um, in 2018 and the opening track Angel is about him and he's the angel looking down on her while she's trying to figure out who can support her on the ground Yeah well that makes a lot of sense because I wondered why she hadn't opened with Gorilla and that big brass start but of course there you've explained why the opening track is is Angel um, how important is Inflow the producer on this uh, album Simon? I think I think very much so I think the fact that she's gone down this route because as well as being I suppose complex in terms of the subject it's actually quite complex in terms of the music as well you know and there's one of those things that you a lot of albums probably of its genre tend to be purely focused on the vocal and purely focused on the delivery whereas this she's very very determined that these are musical journeys that yeah. she go on as well so there's loads and loads of samples but there's songs where there's three and four minutes with no vocal at all it's just the music too Alright well Broken certainly does have a vocal on so there's a kind of a choral opening to it let's have a listen Does it mean to be broken? The room is painfully open. The beauty is in the finding. The darkest parts of the ocean. Deep waters in motion. The tide was coming in heavy. I always knew I was chosen to handle whatever chose me. And that's a little bit of broken from Little Sims and her new album, No Thank You. This 
I think all three of us felt this one works, Louise. Yeah, but this is just like it's five stars, like straight off the bat. No question in your mind about no that. No questions. No, I think that she's a class of her own. And when you compare her to, say, her contemporaries like Stormzy, who's headlining all the biggest festivals across the world, she's still having to pull out because nobody can kind of give her a handout. Like it's mm. it's yeah, it's a disgrace. Yeah. And she she calls it out fairly. She calls it out so eloquently. And yeah, she's I think she's just a genius. All right. Five star album from uh, Louise. What do you think, Sam? It's the pressure now. No, for me, this is a very, very solid four. But it's one of those. She absolutely deserves our support and she absolutely deserves us to listen to it. But it, and what I really, really love was that whole idea. It's not polished. You know, it's just it's just honest and that's great. And it's um, so rare in music today. All right. OK, that's um, Little Sims. No, thank you. Let's move on to album number two, Iggy Pop, Every Loser, 19th solo album at 75 years old. No sign of slowing down here. He's talking to us here about uh, a city called New Atlantis. A little bit of rudeness at the top. Nothing too bad, but uh, quite funny as well. Somewhere south of Alabama and north of Cuba, there lies a beautiful whore of a city. New Atlantis, the name of the song from Every Loser by Higgy Pop. Somewhere south of Alabama, Alabama, Alabama and north of Cuba. He's having a lot of fun here, he uh, Simon. I know he is, definitely. And I suppose when you reach a certain stage in your life, and Iggy Pop is 75 now, you get to do whatever it is that you want, regardless of the fact that some of it, even on this album, is is bizarre and is rubbish. But when it's <laughs> but when it's good, like that track, and there's another track called Morning Show, are just lovely. And they are sort of the Iggy Pop that I love, the one that I listen to on the radio, and the one that whenever you hear him speak, you want to hear more of. You want to hear him and Nick Cave do a double header. You know, that's what you want. But then when he gets mm. into some of the other stuff, it gets into the into Frenzy, the Frenzy yeah. of the opening title. It's like, ah, Iggy. Yeah, and, it's, it's, yeah, and, he, and he does open with Frenzy. And I think that that was the moment of, I don't know what word to use, but a, a little bit of disappointment for you, uh, Louise, was it? I mean, I, I don't want to come across as an ageist, but <laughs> sometimes... I feel that maybe people should be telling you what not to do. And he has so much power and yet his opening track is all about coming in and waving his genitalia about the place because he's still sticking it to the man even though on Mm. paper he's the man. Do you know? It just, it feels redundant. And do those songs just wreck the album for you or are there enough songs on it that and let the album survive I mean the song we just heard is, is a lot of fun we were all smiling and having yeah, no, crack listening New, to New it New Atlantis and The Morning Show are definitely that type of song that I feel like he should be leaning more towards where it's mm. funny he's poking fun at himself but it's also kind of taking into account the, the many lives that he's lived and that's what we all want to that's what we want, what we want to hear from Iggy Pop we don't want to be kind of stepping back in time to 50 years yeah. ago when yeah. you know he couldn't he could stand in front of a train and still be fine that's <laughs> um, true he's not alone on this album no no, no but in fairness Iggy Pop he's, all, he's always had all mm. of his musical buddies involved and there's no exception here uh, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses is in Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers is in the drumming on the last track is uh, Taylor Hawkins uh, who passed away last year mm. uh, Dave Navarro is involved from Jane's Addiction everybody gets in on this and he's brought in some fairly hardcore production as well Andrew Watt is in and Andrew Watt has 
produced albums for Ozzy Osbourne, but he's also done Miley Cyrus. You know, so he, so he's mm. some, but he's one of the big, big world producers yeah. of the moment. So, but he's always done that. He throws kitchen sink yeah. at everything. Well, let's say you both mentioned Morning Show as another of the uh, acceptable songs on the album. Let's listen to a bit of that. Life as a radio presenter back in England. Well, it has already back it, has, it hasn't yes, it? For yes, Iggy yes. Pop. Um, morning show from from Iggy Pop there and the album Every Loser. Is he really going? I mean, that's the Leonard Cohen. Johnny yeah. Cash was the previous song. Is he really going back to his hard rock roots here? I think that's what you said. About he this. has. He has his moments where he kind of jumps in and out. There's a few tracks on it. You mentioned Frenzy at the start. Mm. There's a few tracks on it that are very much that sort of 30, 40 years ago Iggy Pop. And it's, it, you know, it's almost as if they pass you by. You kind of go, yeah, good man, Iggy. But then you find these little nuggets and the nuggets are in there. And I think there's a real, there's a there's a world for him to go into now. Like he went into his world of French crooning for two albums, you know, and now he's he's come back to this again. Oh. But I suppose you're, we, it just has to be allowed it because he's yeah. Iggy Pop. All right. I, I think a, a concept album about radio shows, clearly with, yeah. with the morning show, with the <laughs> afternoon, he can do the whole, yeah, he can do not? the whole 24 hours, can't he? Uh, oh, Overall, then, Louise, I, I have, uh, are you half persuaded? Um, I think it, for all the nuggets he's had on the album, I'll give him stars and that's two. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you reckon we heard the two nuggets? That's it. Yeah, yeah. I must say that those two songs maybe don't fully represent the album, yeah. it has to be said. Simon, what are you saying overall? Uh, I'm going to give him a three for this, and I, but I want to hear more of storytelling Iggy rather than swinging genitalia Iggy, I think. <laughs> Okie doke, thank you for that. Uh, the title of the album is Every Loser from Iggy Pop. And obviously if you go to download two tracks, Morning Show and New Atlantis are the two tracks to download. Let's move on to Bell and Sebastian, uh, late developers here. Well, they've been, they've been a long time becoming late developers, they have, Simon. They have 25 years, uh, uh, Ben and Sebastian have been around. And I think probably most indie fans of a certain vintage will have Tiger Milk and the other early uh, Ben and Sebastian hmm. stuff in their library. They kind of disappeared off and everybody thought they'd kind of gone away. So they went away for the guts of seven years, came back uh, a couple of years ago with an album, then came back last year with one more and then people thought right okay well maybe what's the, what's next is it the greatest hits is it a live album some sort of a retrospective but no they've come back with they say a second album of material from the sessions that were for the last album and you can see it from the cover of the new album it's developing a picture of the cover of the last album oh, so these okay. are very much I suppose a companion piece all right, and I hear a certain amount of cynicism in the way you said companion piece there, Simon Marr, so I'm dedicating this track to you. When the cynics stir back from the wall. <laughs> There's somebody that I want you to know She's a sweet, sweet friend of mine If she has a fault, she will go overboard When there's a matter and she flirts like a child Take her in once and for all Stay away from them When 
the cynics stare back from the wall from Bell and Sebastian and I wanted to hear both voices there uh, Louise um, that's vintage Bell and Sebastian in fact isn't it? All the way from 1994 so if you're thinking you like it there's a reason why it's from <laughs> back then and not from they now They wrote the song back then yeah? Back then unreleased and then they they whipped it out for late developers um, because this is the album of, of Leftovers isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear so but you did like that one I did and actually when I first listened to it I had to double check it wasn't Circa Richardson singing with them but it's in fact Camera, uh, Camera Obscura's Tracy Ann Campbell um, and it was just it was they're great at character songs and I, mm. I think they're great at kind of bringing us into the world of just ordinary people and I this is one of but. those songs I hear a big butt though yeah <laughs> but I, I did like one thing that I I always search for in an album is a good theme a good strong narrative and while I do feel like they're going back to kind of those lost moments in adolescence that you know we wish we could have changed or the ones that maybe changed as greatly as, as adults I just felt like I was searching for something that never really landed which I know Simon does not Simon you, it, it, you, ser- you looked you searched and it sat down on the table in front of you No, I have to say I am slightly biased because I've always loved Bell and Sebastian you know and when uh, a bit of previous came out last year um, I was delighted and I loved the album but I was worried and I was worried from the first second that I heard this is a companion piece here's some music from the same sessions and we've discussed this several times before and it's a trend again now that songs that previously probably would have been cast away into a cupboard somewhere Mm. to go on that Rarities album long after they're dead you know have now appeared far too soon Yeah because I kind of wondered the the title Late Developers the the song that we just heard from back in the 1990s you can kind of understand well let's revisit something that we kind of started back 10, 15 20 years ago and see if we can tweak it and change it now that worked but just the the leftover material from the last session Uh, revisiting stuff from last March no No, I'm I'm not sure it's rarely rarely ever makes sense but you're still a fan I still love them (laughs) <laughs> so are you going to be totally unbiased and, and objective in your presenting him and your giving of stars? Frankly, probably not. Um, but I'm going to give it three stars um, because when it's good, it's very, very good. But it's like, don't be doing this again. That is not reflecting what you're saying. But we'll let you give Grant your three stars because you. you love them. Uh, what are you saying, Louise? I was also there with the three. It's always pleasant to listen to them. But, you know, I could be listening to an album from five years ago or last year and it would still be the same sentiment. All right. So you're not quite as positive about it as uh, Simon is, I think. Bell and Sebastian, late developers. Let us move on to uh, Leila Moss and uh, an album called Internal Working Model. Tell me a little bit about her, first of all, if you would, Louise. Who are we talking about when we talk about Leila Moss? Yes, so she's a busy woman. Um, She was uh, part of the band The Duke Spirit, which would have been kind of huge kind of in the early kind of late 90s early mm. 2000s and then herself and Toby Butler from the Duke Spirit broke off and they formed Roman Remains and he actually I think collaborates on this album mm. as well so there's no ill will between herself and her former um, colleagues uh, this is her third outing and she kind of veers away from that kind of indie sound that she would have had with the Duke Spirit and it's more kind of post-punk um, kind of the real synth fest and it's quite funny as well there's a lot of dark dark themes Mm. that are brought to life with um, kind of darker jokes alright let's have a listen to a track called Shadows
That's uh, the voice of Gary Newman there featuring on the track Shadows, uh, uh, Vanishing Shadows, I beg your pardon, from Leila Moss and her new album, Internal Working Model. Um, the influences are very obvious here at times. I mean, yeah. when the album opened with Empathy Flies, I thought, oh, this is a Bjork album. And I, Bjork came back a few times during the album yeah. for me. Are there others there, Simon, that there you are, could hear? Y- you can tell, like, as I was listening to you, yeah, there's definitely Bjork. There's plenty PJ Harvey in there yeah. as well. And I found quite a lot of Roisin Murphy as well. And again, these are these are good things, mm. you know, if you're going to bring influences together. And the fact that... As long that, as you make them your own. Oh, that's and the she, thing. Does she do that? Actually, no, she does that very well. And when she brings people in like Gary Newman and she brings in Jenny Beth and she brings in uh, George Harrison's young fella, whose name will come back mm. to me and say, Danny. Danny. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, when she brings them in, they add something to it, you know, and that's that's the thing. She has that, she's got that uh, notion of that she's able to keep something very industrial sounding, something quite alternative sounding, but also make it mm. that the songs work. And thematically, is there anything tying the album together for you, Louise? Yeah, she's going hard on surveillance capitalism, which is something that would uh, fall flat in another person's hands. But she kind of handles it quite well. Just she, it was a pandemic album that kind of maybe visited the tired uh, theme of disconnecting, but she's now connecting to a darker force. Okay, so did it work for you and stars Louise? Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. It was a great no, she she followed through, <laughs> and yeah. it was a three and a half stars for me. Three and a half. Yeah. What are you saying overall on that? One, yeah, Simon? I, I I really enjoyed this, um, so I'm going to give it four stars. Four stars. Yeah, um, generous mood on this one. That's internal working model from Leila Moss. The other three albums we spoke about tonight: Late Developers from Bell and Sebastian, Every Loser from Iggy Pop, and No Thank You from Little Sims. Simon Marr and Louise Bruton are reviewers on this Friday evening.